Well, glad to see all of you today on this 4th of July of this year, and uh, we are going to be looking today at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and uh, we'll be there in just a moment. Today, obviously, is July 4th, as you're well aware. 245 years ago, the Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 representatives of what historians call the 13 original colonies. Although all 56 did not sign on July 4th due to travel issues, some signed a few weeks later, but, but in the end there were 56 signatures. And John Adams, who became the first vice president under George Washington and then followed him as the second president, uh, wrote a letter to his wife regarding what was coming up on the 4th of July. He wrote this letter to his wife. Some historians say it was on July 2nd, others say July 3rd. But he says this to his wife, he said, The fourth day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America to be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival, commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. He writes very flowery in the course of the 1700s. He said, uh, you will think me transported with enthusiasm, meaning when they wrote about enthusiasm in the 1700s, they meant you were kind of on this euphoric eye. He said, you will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil, the blood, and the treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, the potential gloom, I can see rays of light and glory that the end is worth all the means, that posterity, meaning those to come after them, will triumph in this day, even though we might live to regret it personally himself, but he said, I trust in God, we shall not. Well, the next day he signed the declaration in hopes that the uh, toil, blood, and treasure, as he called it, that it would take to break away from England and form a new government would be worth it in the generations to come. You know, there are some people, of course, in our, especially in our recent history, there are many people who despise the history of the United States or what they understand as the history of the United States. Uh, and even though mo there are some people who do that, most people in the United States today would probably say to John Adams, it was worth it. We currently have one of the most prosperous countries on the planet. We have an amazing level of personal freedom. For those willing to work for it, the United States is still a land of enormous opportunity, which is why our country continues to be the number one destination in the world for those wanting to immigrate. There are some who think the USA is a terrible country that needs to be dismantled and, and uh, destroyed and totally restructured, but our country continues to be the number one destination in the world for those wanting to immigrate, so I guess the rest of the world doesn't think we're so terrible. There are, as you know, millions of people trying to enter the USA illegally, but did you know there are over one million immigrants who settle here legally every year? They go through the proper legal channels, they make the appropriate applications, they wait their turn on a list, they enter this country legally. The immigration stats are 1.1 million people every year who come to our country legally. And over the last 10 years, there's been 6.6 .6 million immigrants who have be legally become citizens of the United States. 680,000 on average every year. 
And I believe those 6.6 million immigrants who have decided to become citizens of our country just in the last 10 years would tell John Adams that despite America's problems, which they have plenty of, the toil, blood, and treasure was worth it. I'm thankful for our country with all of its issues, all of its troubles, all of its flaws. We obviously have a bunch of them. I'm still very thankful to be here. I'm thankful for the freedom to worship God without government interference. I'm thankful for the liberty to talk about the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ openly and publicly. I'm thankful for the tens of millions of dollars that flow out of this country every year to gospel ministries around the world. I'm thankful for the opportunity to work to make our country better. This world is not our home, as the old song says. We are just traveling through. But in, the, in our time here on this earth, I'm thankful that God in His providence decided to place us here in America, in this land of freedom. In the 1860s, during the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was reportedly asked if God was on the side of the Union. He said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is that whether we are on God's side, because God is always right. 120 years later in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan was asked about some of his policies and if he thought God was for them. He replied in a similar way. He said, I recognize we must be cautious in claiming that God is on our side, but I think it's all right to keep asking if we're on his side. You know, that is the question that every true believer in Jesus needs to ask regarding every issue of life, every choice, every vote, every position. Am I on God's side? Am I representing the cause of Jesus Christ in this particular matter, whatever the issue may be? Unless you're beginning to think that this is going to be a message on politics on this July 4th, I assure you this is not a message on politics. But every follower of Jesus Christ beginning with the apostles in the first century uh, and all the way down to today, have had to determine how they are going to respond to the government under which they live. Every follower of Jesus has had to deal with government, and they've had to figure out what their response is going to be to various government policies that impact their lives and their witness for the Lord Jesus. Sometimes followers of Jesus have had government leaders who seem to be concerned about being on God's side. But generally, our government leaders don't seem to care one bit about being on God's side, nor do they seem to care about God at all, except to use their twisted views of God to support their immoral policies. But what are we as followers of Jesus to do with a government that is unfriendly to our beliefs? And how are we to live in a world and in a culture that is increasingly hostile to everything that we believe? Here in the USA, the government has pretty much left us alone for many generations and has even supported faith-based ministries in some cases, but those days are over. The forces of secularism, which if you're not familiar with that term, secularism is just a philosophy that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. They mean that they believe that nothing is sacred, everything is secular, there's nothing holy or sacred. And those forces of secularism seem to be rolling through our culture without so much as a speed bump to slow them down. Pastor Tim Keller wrote recently, We are entering a new era in which our culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith 
and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife, are, all those beliefs are, are disappearing in more and more people. Now our culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible, meaning they can't even figure out why someone would, would, would believe it. The forces of secularism in our culture are powerfully pushing back against the Bible teaching about sexuality and gender and education and the purpose of government and truthfulness and business ethics and so forth. And public opinion in many places has turned against the Word of God and the people who believe it. I won't ask you to turn there, it's a, but I'm just going to quote something to you from Psalm 118. The psalmist speaks of the deliverance of the Lord. This psalm, actually Psalm 118, is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And the, the psalmist writes of the nations around them, makes an interesting statement. One of his statements, he says, They surrounded me like bees. You pushed me violently so that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. And I thought as I read that, what will we do when the enemies of the gospel begin to surround us like a swarm of bees? And they begin to push us so hard that we wonder if we're going to fall. That is what was happening in the early church in our passage in Acts chapter 4. Uh, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, you remember Peter and John came into the temple. Uh, they found a man there begging. He had been lame since he was born. And uh, he was now in his 40s. He sat every day kind of begging near the temple. Uh, in interestingly, that part of the temple where he was in was called Solomon's Porch. Even though Solomon had been deceased for probably 900 years, they had named that section of the temple building after him. And, and uh, so this beggar, this man, this lame man was begging there in Solomon's porch at the temple. Peter heals him. This big crowd gathers. Peter preaches a wonderful message about Jesus Christ. And he calls the people to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ. This alerts the Jewish leaders and, and the people that we would call the temple police. They're quite upset that Peter is preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So they arrest Peter and John, and they throw them in the slammer overnight, being that it was too late to convene the Sanhedrin, that ruling council of the Jewish people. So the next day, now after they've been in jail overnight, we come to our story here in Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin to read in verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now we read through this and maybe the, the trauma of all this doesn't quite hit us. But if somebody arrested you and threw you into jail, and the next day they march you into a courtroom, and there's 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 people there, all opposed to you, all angry about what you're saying, and you are surrounded there, and they put you out in the middle of them, and then they begin to interrogate you. And they say, by whose name are you doing this miracle? Peter, verse 8, Phil says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. 
This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 11 is another quote from Psalm 118. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and I'll pause there for just a moment, sometimes in our in our modern area, or in our area here, when people say a person is bold, they don't mean that as a compliment. They mean they're kind of pushy and overbearing and bossy and shoving everybody around. The word here, bold, does not mean that. It means that you are courageous, that you are fearless, that you are not intimidated. And so here you got Peter and John standing surrounded by at least 70, maybe close to 100 people who are opposed to what they're preaching. And Peter basically looks at them and says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucify. That's the name by, by which we did this, because that's the only name by which a man may be saved. That's tremendous courage. Tremendous courage. So they saw the boldness, the courage of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, meaning they hadn't gone to some official seminary someplace, as all these guys had at the, sem at the, at the Sanhedrin. And they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. How could they? Here's the guy who's been lame since birth. He's now in his 40s. He's standing there right next to Peter and John. He's now walking around. What are they going to say to that? Well, nothing. So he's standing there with them. They could say nothing. But when they commanded them to go outside the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on they speak, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And this is what I want to think about in these next few verses here. It says, verse 23, Being let go, they went to their own companions. They went back to the group of disciples. And they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, let's put this in our modern context. Suppose I got arrested. And they kept me in jail overnight. And they said, you have to stop preaching the gospel. You can't, you can't take your Bible to church, pastor, and preach to those people again. And it happened to be on a Saturday night, so Sunday morning I show up here again. And you folks are here. And I say to you, this is what the government authorities have told me. They have told me that I cannot preach to you anymore. What would the response be? Well, this is their response. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That is a quote from Psalm 2. Some of you know that. 
For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, there it is again, courage, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, the answer to God's prayer or answer to their prayer to the Lord. So what will we do when the enemies of the gospel begin to surround us like a swarm of bees and begin to push us so hard that we wonder if we're going to fall? In this prayer, there are at least three great truths about God that I want to emphasize with you this morning. At least three great truths about God. Number one is this, God answers Biblical praying or biblical prayer. Notice it said in verse 24, they raised their voices to God with one accord, meaning there was unity of purpose. We often plead for unity among followers of Jesus, and we generally are hoping for unity of opinions or unity of viewpoints, which is never going to happen until there is unity of purpose. But their purpose was to preach the word of God with courage. That's what they said in verse 29, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They said, they said, Lord, we want to preach your word. We want to speak your word with courage. Their goal was to advance the cause of Christ, to spread the gospel. That was their hope and their prayer. Notice they did not pray for deliverance from opposition. They did not pray for personal safety. They prayed for courage. They didn't say, oh, Lord, help them not to do anything to us. Lord, help them not to come in here and try and throw us in jail. No, they said, Lord, help us to be courageous. Help us to not be intimidated. And as they prayed with confidence, or they prayed with confidence because they understood that God answers biblical praying. You know, you cannot read the Bible without realizing that there is a definite connection, a definite relationship between faith-filled prayer and God's intervention into the affairs of men and nations. Because God answers biblical prayer. Then secondly, God is the sovereign ruler of this world and all its nations. Notice they began their prayer in verse 24, Lord, you are God. Most of the time in the New Testament, the word Lord is the translation of the Greek word kurios, which just means a ruler, a master, one with authority to govern, one with the authority to oversee. It's a term of Lord, and it's a term of respect and honor, and it appears about 750 times in the New Testament. It's in verse 29 again, when they said Lord there in verse 29, that's the, that's the word kurios. But in this particular spot here in verse 24... They used a different word. They used the word despotes, which means it only appears ten times in the New Testament. It means someone with absolute, unquestioned authority. In fact, we get our English word despot from that word. If we use the word, that guy's a despot, we use it in a negative sense. But when they are applying it to God as a person who, have, who has absolute unquestioned authority, they are addressing God as their sovereign ruler. 
They acknowledge the God who has revealed himself through the Bible is the sovereign ruler and the creator of all things. That's what he says here. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything that's in it. And then they apply, they quote Psalm 2, and they refer to the nations rising up against God, and they apply that text to their current situation. They say Herod and Pilate and the Romans and all the unbelieving Jews, they all gathered together to plot against the Lord and against his Christ. But in the end, they said they were only doing what God had planned. That's what he means in verse 28. What a powerful theological verse there. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. He said, they're saying, God, you planned for all of these rulers to rise up against Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection was the plan of God. And as you are well aware of that, because he was purchasing our redemption. He was fulfilling the plan of God for our eternal salvation. And as the disciples prayed this prayer, applying this text of Scripture to their current situation, they simply asked God to fulfill his will through them, regardless of the threats of the government. If we were to read and study the rest of Psalm 2, we would see that it is a psalm reinforcing the sovereignty of God and his ultimate judgment over the nations. Down at the end of Psalm 2, it's not a very long psalm, you'd glad, be glad for you to read it sometime if you haven't in recent days. But down toward the end of chapter in Psalm 2, God offers the nations and their rulers an opportunity to repent. But he basically says, I will perform my will on this earth. So either get on board with my plan or you can face the judgment of God. Which brings us to our third truth about God. Not only does God answer the prayers of his people, not only is God the sovereign ruler of this world and its nations, but God does perform his will in the nations of the world. Now, of course, we look back at this text and we nod our heads with understanding and approval. We say, yes, God performs his will among the nations, we say. And thank God that in that day, Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the unbelieving Jews, they all rose up against Christ, but they were just doing what God wanted to be done. Christ had to die for sins. He was born and he lived and he died in the right place at the right time for the right purpose. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But what about us right now in 2021? God is still the sovereign ruler of the world and all its nations. He is still the Lord, the despotes of all the ethnic groups of the world. He is still the absolute, unquestioned sovereign of all of the nations. And he, and he still rules all the political entities of the world. As someone said, I was reading this week, God is still God, and he's not taking applications for replacements. But suppose now in 2021, or in the next five years, in the next ten years, suppose God decides to shuffle the power structures of the world and its nations, and we get caught in the middle. That's what's happening here in the book of Acts. The Romans are powerful, the Jewish people are powerful, but you know, within 40 years of this passage, the city of Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. The Jewish people were scattered all over the world. The temple was destroyed. They were on the verge or in the middle of this huge shuffling of a power structure in the world. What if that happens here? I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Can we still pray 
Lord, give us courage to speak your word. Not pray, Lord, don't let them hurt me. Lord, don't, don't, let them, don't let them take things from me. Protect me from loss, Lord. Don't let anything bad happen to us, Lord. That's not what these guys prayed. They said, Lord, give us courage to speak your word. Because whatever is happening, you are allowing it to be so. As I was doing my study this week and reading a number of various things, I came across uh, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. He was re-elected to a second term as president in 1864. He gave this second inaugural address March the 4th, 1865, just 41 days before he was assassinated. I'm not sure how much American history you read or study. I've I'm, I'm been a student of it for a long, long time. I love to look at various things. And, you know, over, over 600,000 Americans died in four years in the Civil War, sometimes called the War Between the States. Some modern estimates say 700,000. Americans killing Americans, brothers against brothers, fathers against sons, cousins against cousins, and unfortunately, professing Christians against professing Christians. Let me read to you a few excerpts from Lincoln's speech. In speaking about the war and all these perplexing confusions of these issues in the Civil War, he has a very fascinating perspective. This is his, this, this, he's standing before Congress, he's speaking to a group of people as he's being inaugurated president a second time. Forty-one days later, he was shot in the back of the head. Lincoln said this, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes God's aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man would dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. He's referring to slavery. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both sides could not be answered, and that of neither side has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes, Lincoln said. Then he quotes Matthew eighteen seven: Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. That's Matthew 18, verse 7. Then he says this, he said, If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, had to come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he's giving to both the North and the South this terrible war, as the woe or the judgment due to those by whom the offense came, and this is a flowery phrase, he says, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? In other words, he's saying, is God any different? Does God change? We, all, we say these things about God. Can we say those same things about God in the midst of this war? He says, fondly we hope and fervently we pray that this mighty scourge of war might speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that this war continue until all the wealth accumulated by the slave owners, 250 years of slave owning, shall be destroyed, and until every drop of blood drawn with the slave owner's lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, which many of you recognize as a quote from Psalm 19. Quite a thought from our 16th president. His conviction was that the Civil War 
was the judgment of God on America because of 250 years of slavery. And while he pleaded with God for the war to end, he expected that the war would not end until God had completed his judgment. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, Lincoln said, which, as I said, a number of you know as a quote from Psalm 19. You say, Pastor, what, what is the point of all this? The point is this, that on this July 4th, 2021, we are culturally surrounded by a swarm of secular bees who are trying to knock us off our feet and intimidate us into not following the Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do? Will we pray as the disciples prayed, Lord, do you see their threats? Give us courage to speak your word. Will we have the courage and the confidence in God that Daniel had? Let me close with two brief reminders from the life of Daniel, and then we'll wind up today. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We won't tell the full and complete story of what's going on with all of this. Uh, some of you are familiar with the story of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Nobody can tell him what the dream is or what the interpretation is, so he sends out this order to kill all the wise men in Babylon. They come to Daniel's house to kill him, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel says, why does the king want to kill everybody? Captain of the king's guard tells him, he says, ask the king to give me some time. I will pray to the God of heaven and see if he'll give me an answer. And in verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And notice this next verse. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives knowledge to the wisdom of the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel immediately, as those disciples in Acts chapter 4 did, fall before the sovereign God and say, Lord, wisdom and might are yours. You can do whatever you want in the nations of this world. You change the times and the seasons. Nations rise, nations fall. You, you, you remove kings, you set up kings, you, you do all those things. And then down in verse 27, when Daniel comes to the king, he answers in the presence of the king the secret which the king has demanded. The wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But, and I love this phrase, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel says, I thank God who sets up kings and takes them out. And remember, Daniel was an exile. He had, he had lived through Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem and had been marched away 400 miles in, 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 into Babylon as a, as a slave. And he says, God raises up kings and he takes them back down. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven. And he's going to do what he wants to do. And then look at chapter 4. Another dream that Daniel had. Or another dream, sorry, that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel comes to interpret it for him. Basically, the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar. 
and he is going to, he's been strutting around being arrogant and, uh, and, and thinking he is un, undefeatable and he can't, uh, and, and, he, and, and there's nothing that can possibly touch him. And look at verse 32 of chapter 4. God speaking to Nebuchadnezzar said, They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times, seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Verse 34, after Nebuchadnezzar finally got his act together, realized who God was, He says, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And I guess my thoughts here on July 4th that I want to leave with you again is this. There is a God in heaven who answers biblical prayer. There is a God in heaven who is the sovereign ruler of this world and all of its nations. There is a God in heaven who performs his will in the nations of this world. And when trouble comes to our land because of our personal sins and because of our national sins, which we have, and it will come one day, you look around at various things going on in our country, you think God's never going to do anything? You think God's just going to turn a blind eye and and, and pretend like none of this has happened? Do you think he's going to turn a blind eye and say, okay, so you murdered 60 million babies in the wombs of their mothers in the last 40 years? Oh, well... You you think God's really going to do that? No, He's not. There is a God in heaven who answers biblical prayer. There is a God in heaven who is the sovereign ruler of this world and its nations. There is a God in heaven who performs His will in the nations of this world. And when trouble comes to our land because of our national sins, because of our personal sins, it will come. May we pray. May this be our prayer, as, as those uh, d- disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4. Lord, do you see their threats against us? Give us courage to speak your word. May God help us. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for our freedom here in this country. We're thankful for these 200 plus years where the gospel has gone out, the word of God has spread, people have preached the gospel, people have spoken to their friends and relatives openly about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for that freedom. And we know that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people in this land who know you as their Savior. And we are grateful for that. We know that there are millions upon millions of dollars that flow out of this country to other countries for gospel preaching ministries around this world. And we are thankful for that. We're privileged to be in this land of plenty for all of these years. But Lord, we know that there is trouble on the horizon. 
Our nation is sliding further and further away from the principles taught in the Scripture. More opposition to uh, your kingdom, to your word, to people who believe it. When it will come and how it will come and how severe it may be, we have no idea. But Lord, may we pray with Daniel, recognizing the sovereignty and power of God, who raises up kings and nations and takes them back down in accordance with his will. May we remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 2. May we, Lord, remember the heart of these disciples in Acts chapter 4, whose only concern in times of government opposition was, Lord, give us courage to speak your word. May it be so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.